What should we talk about? Yeah. I have a question getting back. Well, when she asked about the object of meditation, you said the purpose of meditation. And then when you talk about the happiness, it's kind of created in the mind. What if your life has gone on pretty well and you're pretty happy most of the time and there's no great pain, no great rage, then why bother to meditate? Well, um, that's a very good question. Could you repeat the question, please? Yes. Uh, she said uh, that uh, if, if the object of this practice is to uh, find happiness, if your life's going along pretty well and you're pretty happy already, why bother? Is that yeah. that's the question? Right. <laughs> I mean, I have some answers, but I'm curious yeah. what your answer is. Well, you know, there, there's, there are some obvious answers. I mean, just in terms of the happiness aspect or the freedom from unhappiness aspect. Uh, even though your life's going along pretty well, it can change. As a matter of fact, it will change. Uh, and uh, not only that, there is, there is pain, loss, sickness, aging, and death. And uh, you know, we, we, can, we can decide things are going pretty good and uh, yes, we recognize those things are there and we have uh, a sort of a stoic resolve that, well, you know, whatever pain, suffering, disease, loss, aging, death itself, you know, I accept that's part of life and I'll take that. Very often, the other thing that inclines people to practice and to seek the fruit of the practice is the desire for wisdom, uh, for understanding, for answers. And although initially that may seem to be a different goal, it's actually not that different, as I, I think I can probably point out to you. But nevertheless, just in that form, often motivates people. They would, I, you know, the the freedom from suffering actually is the result of attaining wisdom, wisdom that eliminates illusion, delusion, ignorance. But. Some people will undertake this particular path or a similar path for the sake of achieving that, uh, that wisdom, that understanding, not primarily for the relief from, or at least consciously in their intents. It's not primarily to, to achieve suffering because they think their life's going pretty well and they can handle whatever life dishes out anyway. Buddhism does promise to give you the, uh, a, a profound understanding of the true nature of reality. So, that could be the reason. What were your ideas? <laughs> well, I mean, my life's not perfect, so <laughs> What's maybe, that? maybe my life could be better. Well, yes. And, right. and yes, the learning aspect is, is interesting. Yeah. I learn a lot. Yes. And also, I think there's very few of us who don't see that we could be, not only could our life be better, but we could be a better person too. And so another reason that we might take up your practice is to become another person, a better person. And then the other thing is too, we might say, well, my life's pretty good, and uh, I can probably handle whatever comes along. But I see that there's a lot of suffering and that other people have. As a matter of fact, see, the world is, is a pit of suffering, and therefore undertake the path in order to learn something, to discover something by which 
they might be able to help other people. So these are all kinds of different reasons. But you know, they're really, they're, they're closely interlinked. And uh, what's, what really impresses me about uh, the way the Buddha put this is that he was able to sort of penetrate to the very crux of all of this. And without having to elaborate all these various dimensions, there all these dimensions are there, but he was able to to present the basic problem and the solution to it without necessarily having to go through all this elaboration. You know, last week we were, I, I read uh, people a little bit, actually you weren't here last week, or the week, the week before last, I recommended that people who uh, would like to get into this teaching a little more deeply, and especially to understand the, the, the basis of Buddhism, that, that they get a book that's called The Life of the Buddha by Nanamoli. And this is, this is my favorite. It, it's now available in a nice glossy paperback from Amazon and everything. And this is my old Vita copy of it. But what it is, it's the Buddha telling his own life story uh, in, in his own words, uh, in, in a sense. It's uh, Bhikkhu Nanamoli has gone and taken all of those sutras in which the Buddha recounts different aspects of his own progress and path and teaching. And, and assembled them into the life of the Buddha. Anyway, so last week, uh, I, I read a little bit from this because it came up as an appropriate thing in regard to questions that people have asked. And I feel like that's happening again here. So let me just find something to read to you here. Um, Yes, last week, after the Buddha's enlightenment, his first reaction was that uh, uh, teaching this would be difficult. As a matter of fact, I just go back and reread that. So, enough of teaching of the law that even I found hard to reach, for it will never be perceived by those that live in lust and hate. Men died in lust and whom a cloud of darkness laps will never see what goes against the stream is subtle, deep, and hard to see. Abstruse. But then he subsequently be, became persuaded that, well, there are those who, that there was a great need for this teaching and that there are those with little dust in their eyes. So he tried to think who he might teach. And uh, he first thought of his uh, two teachers that he had, his first two teachers, Alara Kalama and Udaka Ramaputra. But it turned out that one of them had died just the night before and the other one had died the week before. So, you know. And, of course, those would be the people he thought of who would have the least dust in their eyes. So then the next people that he thought of that would have little dust in their eyes were five fellow uh, uh, ascetics practicing austerities in, in the forest. That, And so he said, well, I'll try teaching this doctrine to them. So um, so he, he sought out he sought out these five. Uh, and I'll pick up the story right here. Um, then wandering by stages, the Blessed One came at length to Benares, to the deer park at Isipatana, where the bhikkhus of the group of five were. They saw him coming in the distance. Then they agreed among themselves. Friends, here comes the monk Gotama who became self-indulgent, gave up the struggle and reverted to luxury. He ate. (laughs) We ought not to pay homage to him, or rise up for him, or receive his bowl and outer robe. Still, a seat can be prepared. Let him sit down if he likes. But as soon as the Blessed One approached, they found themselves unable to keep their path. One went to meet him and took his bowl and outer robe. Another prepared a seat. Another set out water, footstool, and towel. 
The Blessed One sat down on the seat provided and washed his feet. They addressed him by name and as friend. When this was said, he told them, Bhikkhus, do not address a perfect one by name and as friend. A perfect one is accomplished and fully enlightened. Listen, Bhikkhus, the deathless has been attained. I shall instruct you. I shall teach you the law. By practicing as you are instructed, you will, by realizing yourself here and now through direct knowledge, enter upon and abide in that supreme goal of the holy life, for the sake of which clansmen rightly go forth from the house life into homelessness. He wasn't shy. (laughs) (laughs) But what you have to understand is that as a fully awakened being, he had no sense of ego or self. This was just stating the facts. And uh, then the bhikkhus of the group of five said, Friend Gotama, even with, you notice they killed, still called him friend by name. Friend Gotama, even with the hardship, privation, and mortification that you practiced, you achieved no distinction higher than the human state worthy of the noble one's knowledge and vision. Since you are now self-indulgent and have given up the struggle and reverted to luxury, how will you have achieved any such distinction? Then the Blessed One told the bhikkhus of the group of five, A perfect one is not self-indulgent. He has not given up the struggle. He has not reverted to luxury. A perfect one is accomplished and fully enlightened. Listen, bhikkhus, the deathless has been attained. I shall instruct you. I shall teach you the law. By practicing as you are instructed, you will, by realizing yourself here and now through direct knowledge, enter upon and abide in that supreme goal of the holy life, for the sake of which clansmen rightly go forth from the house life into homelessness. This goes back and forth for a while. (laughs) And eventually he was able to uh, convince them. He said, you know, have I ever spoken to you like this before? And he said, no. Well then, why don't you listen to what I have to say? So he says, because there are... Well, I'm, I'm going to skip... No, maybe I won't. Okay, we'll just read the whole thing. Because there are two extremes that ought not to be cultivated by one who has gone forth. What two? There is devotion to, pursuit of pleasure in sensual desires, which is low, coarse, vulgar, ignoble, and harmful. And there is devotion to self-mortification, which is painful, ignoble, and harmful. The middle way, discovered by a perfect one, avoids both these extremes, It gives vision, gives knowledge, and leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nirvana. And what is that middle way? It is this noble eightfold path, that is to say, right view, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. That is the middle way discovered by a perfect one, which gives vision, gives knowledge, and leads to peace, to direct knowledge, to enlightenment, to nirvana. Then he teaches the Four Noble Truths. There is this noble truth of suffering. Birth is suffering. Aging is suffering. Sickness is suffering. Death is suffering. Sorrow and lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are suffering. Association with the loathed is suffering. Dissociation from the loved loved is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. In short, Clinging to the five aggregates is suffering. Now, let me explain that. The four noble truths. This is the first one. The first is the truth of suffering. The second is the truth of the cause of suffering. Uh, this is done, this is laid out in the manner of a physician. You know, this, this, is, this is the problem. This is the cause. This is the cure. And, and this is the uh, medicine that will bring about the cure. So the first is, is the truth of suffering. The second is the truth of the cause of suffering. And the third is the truth of the cessation of suffering. And the fourth is the truth of the path leading to the cessation of suffering. But let's take this first one. And first of all, the word that we are translating here as suffering is dukkha. And Dukkha is a far more all-encompassing term than suffering. Dukkha means 
uh, unsatisfactory, uh, unfulfilling. Um, uh, to experience dukkha is to experience dissatisfaction, lack of fulfillment, discontent. So, it in any degree, in any form. So, the worst kind of suffering imaginable is dukkha, but so is the least kind in the form of dissatisfaction, discontent, uh, existential angst. Do you know what I mean by that? Like, why? Why why is life like this? Why are we living? What's the purpose of it? Nowadays, everybody has asked themselves at one point or another. Struggle through childhood. You know, if you survive, you become an adult, you may spend much of the rest of your adulthood, or if not all of it, overcoming some of the things that happened in childhood. Or if you're lucky, maybe not. But then, if it's continued uh, struggle, pain, suffering, you have children, you struggle to raise them, so what, they can repeat the cycle, and then what do you have to look forward to? You're going to get old. Everyone you love is going to die. Everything that you, you uh, hold precious is subject to loss, decay, breakdown, uh, changes of fortunes. The only thing that you can be certain of is that if you live any length of time, you're going to experience pain, you're going to experience sickness, you're going to get old, and you're absolutely going to die. And in many cases, death is quite unpleasant. Old age is, is very difficult. Most of you have some elderly person, a parent, or someone else in your acquaintance. And you see, as the body breaks down and ceases to fu- function, that the, the, the loss of what that person thought of as themselves and the suffering it brings. If their memory begins to go in their mind, that too. So, so we look at these things, and even if our own situation is very good, and even if we have a good, strong, stoic sense that we can handle it, we can see that this whole situation is definitely less than satisfactory. One of the things that the Buddha did is, on a number of occasions, he challenged different people, kings, wealthy wealthy people, and other spiritual teachers, as, uh, are, are, are you unshakably happy? Have you had a week of uninterrupted happiness? Have you even had a day or half a day completely free from some form of dissatisfaction, frustration, or, or disappointment? And they answered no. So what he's saying here is that this dukkha, whether we're talking about the most extreme form or the least, uh, or the mildest form, it permeates human existence. That from the time we were born until we die, that there is a, a dukkha in all of its different forms is woven into the fabric of our existence. And this is the truth of suffering. Or we should say the truth of dukkha. Now some people look at this and they say, oh, well, Buddhism is very pessimistic. You know, system. No. Life's good. Life is great. And that's why this is a truth that needs to to be taught and understood. Most most people, by the time they seriously engage in a spiritual path, have, if not explicitly understood this, they at least have a, a very strong intuitive sense of the unsatisfactoriness of life. That it seems somewhat meaningless, pointless, filled with many potentials for uh, quite severe forms of mental and physical suffering. And, And what we experience continuously throughout our life is some degree of disappointment, frustration, so forth. Now, it's important to understand that dukkha the, the Buddha made a clear distinction, not in this particular verse, 
But he said that there's two different kinds of dukkha. There is the dukkha that has its origins in the physical body. And then there's dukkha that has its origin in the mind. Well, the dukkha that has its origins in the physical body, that would include physical pain and any other kind of unpleasant, intrinsically unpleasant sensory experience. Okay, so that's one kind of dukkha, sometimes called dukkha dukkha. And then there is the mental form of dukkha, uh, sometimes called dhammanasa dukkha, the Pali words that are used, <coughs> to distinguish the two. But it's very important to make this distinction between these two kinds of, of, of dukkha. Now, life is filled with both kinds of dukkha. And he points out that birth is suffering. Well, it's painful for the mother, and judging by the reaction of the baby, it's not too much fun for the baby either. Uh, aging is suffering. As we've noted, it involves a lot of physical pain. It can involve a lot of mental suffering as well. Sickness is suffering, of course. And death is suffering. And death, of course, the process of dying uh, is, is, can be very unpleasant. I mean, you know, if, if a hundred-pound amble falls on your head, you won't probably experience a lot of physical suffering associated with that. On the other hand, if you jump out of an airplane without a parachute at 30,000 feet, there's likely to be a lot of suffering on the way down in anticipation of the landing. And most other forms of death that involve failure of the, uh, the urinary system, uh, failure of the circulatory system, failure of the respiratory system, failure of the nervous system, uh, sometimes all of these failing one right after another at the same time, involves a lot of misery. Uh, hence we have debates today about uh, uh, euthanasia and, and all these questions about how, how long should a person be kept alive, and so forth. And we see that there are both the, that, that these things that are just mentioned involve both the physical, uh, the, the dukkha of physical origin and also the dukkha of mental origin. And then there's sorrow and lamentation. These are the emotions that we experience uh, on, upon the loss of that which is dear to us. Pain, grief, and despair are suffering. Association with the loathe is suffering. When we get something we don't want, when we experience aversion to something, that is suffering. Dissociation from the love is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. We can see all of these are different kinds of mental suffering. So, and not to forget the last, he finishes up by saying, in short, is that the clinging to these five aggregates, these five aggregates to which we cling, are suffering. But let's go back and look at this clearly. You can see that pain is absolutely inevitable, right? The physical body, you're born in a human body, human existence, you are going to experience causes of physical pain. There's no avoiding that. Even use painkillers, they wear off, right? Physical pain is inevitable. Um, we have to ask the question, is mental pain, is mental suffering inevitable? Is the dukkha of mental origin inevitable? Or does it have roots that can be overcome? If it does, we have eliminated a huge part of the dukkha associated with human existence. The pain is still left. Now, let's examine pain, though. Is when we have an experience of pain, is that 
purely physical. No, it's not. You're right. It has a very large mental component to it. As a matter of fact, it is a practice that the Buddha taught where we learn to observe the feelings of pleasant and unpleasant that arise in association both with the physical sensory phenomena and that arise from the mind. And if we do that practice, what we'll discover is that the two fall in sequence so that there is a physical sensory experience. It may be pleasant or it may be unpleasant. Then the mind identifies and conceptualizes the experience and that in turn produces a second reaction which may be the same or different than the physical. So, And you know this is true that you can experience something that is physically painful but if you know that if you associate it with some strong pleasure if you know that that either pleasure is coming or or it could take many forms you're willing to experience pain for the sake of pleasure and that knowledge when the pain arises and then immediately following that is the recognition and knowledge of what's associated with it then the reaction is pleasant not only that don't we find that some things that are initially unpleasant we can, through learning, mentally experience as pleasant? Things that taste wonderful to us as adults because we require the taste for them. Give them to a child and say, what do you think of this? Oh, yeah. (laughs) So, now as an adult, the effect on the taste buds hasn't changed, but the mind's response to it has changed through conditioning. So there is, when you experience physical pain, there's a downstream reaction. Most of the time, if you have, if, if you burn your hand, then in addition to the physical pain, there's a lot of mental suffering in reaction to that. In the case of a chronic and lasting pain, uh, our attention is drawn to it and we suffer greatly and we try to distract ourselves, and if we succeed, it doesn't bother us as much. Is that not correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so, it would seem that a lot of the suffering associated with physical pain is actually mental suffering that's happening downstream of the physical event. Um, if you have pain, say you have a severe headache, and the thought comes, I, I can't stand it. This is never going to go away. It feels much worse, right? That thought, that mere thought, that, that if you think about how much you dislike the pain, it's worse. There's a, long, a lot of downstream component to that. Um, as a matter of fact, I think a common experience is you have physical pain and it's not that bad, not that severe, and then you find out that it's going to last a long time. It becomes immediately much more unpleasant. The idea, if, if you knew it was going to be over in a second, you can handle it. But the idea is going to go on for a long period of time and makes it a lot more difficult to deal with. Or the other thing that happens too, I notice this uh, at least, and maybe you have too, if you have some pain and the idea occurs to you that you have a way to relieve that pain, it's actually worse between the time you realize that there's relief and when you manage to actually bring the relief into play. So anyway, examine your own experience carefully and you will find there's a tremendous downstream mental component to suffering as a result of pain. Now, what everyone who meditates for any length of time discovers through their own direct experience is that pain itself can be tolerated without suffering. 
and maybe not all of you have come to that point in your practice, but it happens not that far into the practice. And when that happens, then you realize far more fully than this summary that I'm giving you now that most of the suffering associated with physical pain is mental. But what will happen with everyone is you will experience pain if you do long meditation sits. But if you do a, a long retreat, you experience pain in the body. Um, the way to deal with the pain is to examine it mindfully. If you examine it mindfully, well, sometimes it will disappear. But that's not really what I'm talking about. Often it will continue, but it will cease to have that quality of painfulness that was so distracting that kept you from meditating. And it becomes just another sensation. And uh, no one I've ever encountered has expressed the nature of this phenomenon as clearly as Shinzen Young. Because he will tell you that suffering equals pain times resistance. And the degree to which we resist physical pain, that is the degree to which we will suffer it. And he, he holds, and I agree with him 100%, that it is perfectly described by that mathematical equation, that pain times suffering, or pain times resistance equals suffering. So the implications of this, if you have 10 units of pain and 10 units of resistance, you'll have 100 units of suffering. If you have one unit of pain and a thousand units of resistance, you'll have a thousand units of suffering. But here's the real kicker. If you have a thousand units of pain and zero units of resistance, you will have zero suffering. And this is, this is actually the condition of uh, an awakened being uh, known as a non-returner or of uh, the awakened being who's known as an arahat or a Buddha is that they have zero resistance to physical pain and therefore they have zero suffering when physical pain arises. So, this is interesting then, go back to this truth of suffering that appears at first so uh, discouraging and uh, pessimistic that the truth of suffering, that life, uh, human life is permeated by dukkha. But if, and I guess we haven't demonstrated this one yet either, but if mental suffering can be overcome, then all suffering can be overcome. Since the resistance to physical pain is what causes physical pain to be suffering. So, what is it that gives us this sense of pointlessness and hopelessness in our life? What is it that gives us this sense of dissatisfaction in so many circumstances? We we have an experience and it is pleasurable for us. And so we naturally want to uh, have that experience again. It may be as pleasurable the second time as it was the first time, but also it may not. If it is, and we keep seeking pleasure from the same experience over and over again, what do we usually tend to find? It gradually loses its uh, quality of, of pleasantness. The other thing that happens is that in order to experience, to, to have that pleasurable experience again, we may go to a huge amount of trouble. We may expend a lot of time, energy, money, whatever. And sometimes it doesn't come at all. Or if it does, and then sometimes it's not as, as pleasant as we expected it to be. 
not as pleasant as it was last time. Or sometimes, even if it is just as pleasant as it was the last time, we look at it and say, but it wasn't worth what I did to get it. That's, that's unsatisfactory. And of course, something pleasant that happens, and have you ever had this experience? Something very pleasant happens, and you want it to last. And wanting it to last makes you realize that it won't. And realizing that it won't takes away the pleasure of it. (laughs) Or you get so busy trying to manipulate circumstances to make it last just a little bit longer or to hold on to it that it basically obliterates the pleasure. All you've got is the craving to continue it, to sustain it. Yes? Um, I'm just wondering, uh, if life is so intrinsically full of suffering, why do most people have this uh, will to live? They want to go on living even though it's so bad. That's a very good question. Uh, The will to live is, is not, in most cases, a conscious decision we make after analyzing our circumstances. <clears throat> you know, we find people with, uh, we find people in terribly miserable circumstances who wish to end their lives, but uh, find it very difficult to do that. The will to, the will to live, the will to survive, uh, is is not something we rationally choose or decide to have. It's just, it's, it's there. We can, we can decide to live voluntarily. But it's, yeah, it's not entirely that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you saying it's just an instinct? What's that? An instinct? Yes, it is. It's an instinct. So are all of these things that, that we're going to be talking about here. They're programmed instincts. Um, even pleasure uh, and pain are programmed into our bodies uh, and our minds. You know, they're they're not something that we choose, and they're not there by accident. And what is pleasant and what is uh, unpleasant differs for different species of animals according to uh, to what serves their needs for survival and reproduction. So. The will to this will to survive is also an instinct that is born into us, and sometimes we find ourselves in terrible conflict with it. Yeah? I've also um, read it described as a desire for separate existence, as a type of desire. Yeah. And how does that factor in? Well, uh, the forms of, of craving include uh, craving for existence, craving for sense pleasures and craving to be free of uh, unpleasantness. But I also include craving for existence and craving for non-existence. These are all things that we experience. So I, I think we would, I think that we would experience, our, or we, we should make a distinction between uh, craving for existence and the instinct to uh, to live. I, I, not that they don't overlap, and not that when the instinct to live arises, it generates a strong craving uh, for existence, or that uh, uh, the well, you can think of somebody, say, in the terminal stages of, of cancer, contemplating. Uh, freeing themselves of, of the suffering, knowing that they're going to die anyway, experience a craving for non-existence. They want, they want it all to be over with. But the instinct to live is in conflict with that. Yes? I'd like to offer that the, that the instinct to live, no, the, the desire to live is not an instinct, but rather resides in a level of consciousness that most people don't get to. That most people wish? That most people don't see. Yeah, well, you could say that, but there is still an instinct. There is a component there that 
Um, I, I say this because uh, people study animal behavior uh, clearly see that there is a, a, an instinct to survive in uh, in animals, and then we look at human behavior. And in spite of whatever psychological interpretation we put on it, we still behave as though we are compelled by the same instinct. But there's a lot more to it. And the craving for existence is more than just the uh, just this will to live, just this instinctive will to live. I think that's what you're saying too, no? I think that there's a level of consciousness that can be attained where, where the instinct, where life becomes a choice, not an instinct. Oh, yes. No, definitely there is. Yes. We can overcome all of our instincts. Craving, desire, aversion, all of the behaviors that come out of that, uh, these are all, you, you could call these instincts as, as well. And they all can be, they all can be overcome. There is a state of consciousness where whether you live or not is is your own choice. Um, As a matter of fact, just to digress a little bit into the Buddha's story, one of the things that happened after his enlightenment came the question, well, why bother to continue living? Which is told in the typical metaphorical fashion that said that Mara visited Buddha and said, well, now that you have attained this full and complete enlightenment, there's certainly no reason for you to hang around here anymore. And the Buddha thought about it, and he said, no, until I have uh, until I have taught other people uh, this this way, and they have mastered it uh, themselves, and not only that, they've learned to teach it to others, and they learn to refute the arguments against it made by others, I won't leave. <laughs> so, I mean, based on that, obviously he had that choice then and at any other time in his life to either continue his uh, earthly existence or to terminate it. Would that be what you're talking about? I'm not sure. You're not sure? Okay. Anyway, to get back to sort of where I was going with this, just, just trying to clarify this first, the, this first of the four noble truths, the truth of, of dukkha, that there is unsatisfactoriness that pervades our life. Now, <coughs> somebody who sees Buddhist practice or other spiritual practice promising an ultimate, an understanding of ultimate, of what is ultimately real of the true nature of reality can be attracted to that. And even that is arising out of a a dissatisfaction with the perception of things as they are. That's what I experienced in my adolescence. I wanted to to know everything. I want to know what everything was about. Either science or religion had to have the answer, I thought. So I spent a lot of time pursuing both avenues in various different ways. But um, I felt a deep, profound dissatisfaction, uh, which I actually experienced as a very pleasant desire or craving to find answers. And of course, in a lot of my search, I didn't find answers. I found frustration, contradiction, illusion, distortion, and so on and so forth. But nevertheless, this, that, that's one of the things that I mentioned that a person might uh, pursue the path for. But there's no question that they would agree with this first noble truth if they examined it carefully. They might ask the question, well, what does this have to do with wisdom? <laughs> but does this have to do with ultimately understanding the way things are? And it's, of course, not apparent, immediately apparent why 
how they are connected. Uh, you have to go into the other truths a little more deeply to see that. But whether you are, are drawn to practice because you want to relieve the suffering of others, uh, because there is a, a existential dissatisfaction you find yourself, uh, whatever the reason, uh, one way or another, if you can come to understanding that, okay, this is the problem, of, this is the situation we find ourselves in, that this human existence is intrinsically, inherently uh, dissatisfactory. That every which way you turn, you're experiencing dissatisfaction uh, in one way or another. And sometimes it's very extreme and difficult. Now, the great physician then gives us the next truth, which is the explanation of the origin of suffering. There is this noble truth of the origin of suffering. It is craving which produces renewal of being. It's accompanied by relish and lust, relishing this and that. In other words, craving for sensual desires, craving for being, and craving for non-being. Now, there's something about this that isn't necessarily obvious right away, that is incredibly simple and uh, and straightforward when, when you grasp it. But... There's several things that he's saying here that aren't totally obvious from the words. Okay, he says it is craving, which produces renewal of being. What do you put that in there for? Craving, which produces renewal of being. Sounds like the reincarnation. As a matter of fact in the culture in which he lived, that was seen as the problem, reincarnation, and that uh, the fruit of the spiritual path was to free yourself from this endless cycle of reincarnation. But in later on, in, in a more full development of the Buddha's own teaching, it becomes clear uh, how this relates to the cause of suffering, is that we are in a continuous state of becoming. And we, the energy for that, well, let's see how to explain this. Okay. We are always in a state of being. That should be obviously true. There is put this different ways, there's only ever the <coughs> present moment, right? There is only now. There is only what is. The future, even the future of a microsecond from now, doesn't exist yet. And the past is the past. It's gone. There is only the present. But when we experience craving. Where are we living? Are we living in the present? Future. We're living, we're living in the future. Sometimes we're clinging to the past as a part of living in the future. Uh, if you're experiencing grief, sorrow, lamenta- lamentation, you're not so much li- living in the future as the past. You're clinging to something that is not present. When you desire something that you don't have, you're living in the future. It is craving that drives this process of not being in the present and usually of continuously becoming. If we, why is it that pain times resistance causes suffering? Pain exists in the present. The desire for the pain not to be present is our resistance for it, resistance to it. And so it is the desire, the craving, or the aversion. Aversion to pain is desire for not pain, right? Mm-hmm. So they're all they're all craving. So craving takes you out of the present and the result of that is is suffering. It is becoming 
that is uh, the perpetuation of dukkha, of dissatisfactoriness. And how is it relating to a baby? A baby hurts itself and feels pain, but it is not experiencing suffering when, because the mind is not yet there. So isn't the development then of the mind and the mental capacity to experience that as also as suffering is the downfall of awareness actually, right? You could say that, yes. That uh, if, if uh, you know, if if we didn't have this level of consciousness and understanding and everything to develop the generated craving, then uh, we wouldn't have suffering. And that's that's actually a legitimate thought, very legitimate thought to pursue, because it is the nature of who you, who and what we are that uh, is responsible for so much of our suffering. Whether it's true or not, many people say that we suffer more than animals because we know that we're going to die and they don't. We know that we're going to suffer and they don't. I I don't know if that's true or not, but the principle of what's being communicated is obvious, is that, that, hey, we'd be better off if we weren't so clever, so smart, (laughs) so knowledgeable. So, but craving is what? It's dissatisfaction with what is. It's rejecting what is. What's here in the present now, I reject it. I want it to be different. I want to have something I don't have, or I want to cease to have something I do have. Right? Is that, yeah? Also, it's exactly the same as what you said for pain. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah. anything times resistance be Exactly. Very good. Anything times resistance is suffering. That's exactly right. Craving is being dissatisfied with what is. So, if dukkha means dissatisfaction, to say that craving is the cause of dukkha is to say, it's almost a a tautology, isn't it? It's saying that our dissatisfaction is caused by being dissatisfied. <laughs> and as simplistic uh, and almost foolish as that may seem, it is incredibly profound. It is exactly the truth. What is, is. And accepting what is by no means means that you resign yourself to it continuing to be that way. But to resist what is, no matter what it is, whether it's pain or not, to resist what is, is to suffer, is to experience dissatisfaction, is to exist in a state of becoming, which is characterized by this dissatisfaction rather than in a state of being. Now Eckhart Tolle says, be here now. He happened to figure this out. He's been trying to explain this to people, you know. Hey, you know. Be here now. Well, this is where you already are. Other people say, well, there's nothing to achieve. We're already there. Well, it's true. You're already here now. But if you're experiencing uh, any sort of unhappiness, if you're experiencing anything other than happiness, then you're not you're not being here now. You're not accepting what is. So, do you, do you see the the inexorable logic of this? And we have to ask. Why is it, what is it about us that's always compelling us to, to want things to be other than what they are? Well, part of it, of course, is the unfortunate thing that we can see the future and also that we can imagine things being different. So if we had no imagination, we might be better off. Or if we couldn't see what was coming, we might be better off. But we can, so we've got this problem. The third truth is the noble is the uh, truth of the cessation of suffering. It is the remainderless fading 
and ceasing, the giving up, relinquishing, letting go, and rejecting of that same craving of that desire to have things be other than the way they are. And the fourth noble truth is the eightfold path uh, leading to the cessation of suffering. But there is so much in this. There's so much in this. H- how do we cause craving to cease? Even granting to see, yeah, okay, if I got rid of craving, I, 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 there'd be no more dukkha. You see that, right? We've all had a taste of that sometime in your life, if not more often. Sometime in your life you had the experience of being totally contented, totally at ease. Right? But every night when you sleep. Yeah. Every night when you're asleep. Most of us aren't consciously aware of that, although we have kind of a memory of that as we come out of it. That was really nice. But you've had other experiences of it when you've been fully alert, fully fully aware, consciously aware of what it means to be totally contented, totally fulfilled, Contented, opposite of discontent. Totally satisfied, the opposite of dissatisfaction. It is... Um, it is the a, a much, much deeper and profound kind of happiness than that we get from uh, sensual pleasures. And... Do you know that? Have you experienced it enough to be able to accept that proposition? That complete contentment, fulfillment, satisfaction is actually a more blissfully happy state than uh, any kind of pleasurable sense gratification that you've experienced? Some of you have. Well, the way to find out is is to test it for yourself. But this problem of how do we bring about the cessation of suffering? Through bringing about the cessation of craving. We have to see what the roots of craving are. And it is said that the roots of craving are ignorance, delusion. It is the belief in, in certain things that are not true. And uh, the very next teaching after this, let me just tell you what happened. The Buddha went through this whole thing of the four noble truths. And uh, I'm going to skip an important part of it here, maybe some other evening we could talk about it. But he. Uh, he gave this was his first the first teaching that he gave after his enlightenment was his teaching on the four noble truths and it's called the 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 sutra of setting the wheel of the dharma in motion and this is what happened as a result of it and i have left out part of it here now while this discourse was being delivered the spotless immaculate vision of the Dhamma arose in the venerable Kandana. Thus, all that is subject to arising is subject to cessation. And when the wheel of the law had been set rolling by the Blessed One, the earth deities cried out at Benares in the deer park at Isipatana, a perfect one accomplished and fully enlightened has set rolling the matchless wheel of law, which cannot be stopped by monk or Brahman or deity or Mara or divinity or anyone in the world. Then the Blessed One exclaimed, Kandana knows, Kandana knows. And that is how the Venerable One acquired the name, uh, Kandana that is, Anatta Kandana, meaning Kandana who knows. So, and then he became the first Diku follower of 
uh, of Buddha. Then what happened is that over the next few days, remember there were five of these uh, uh, sannyasins and the Buddha, so there were six altogether. So over the next few days, the sutras tell us that they would take turns. Three would go into town uh, at a time and they would gather alms for all of them, bring them back. And so the Buddha continuously taught for several days. There's only one other teaching that uh, we have to this day from that session. Obviously, he said a whole lot more over several days of continuously teaching. Uh, Three at a time going into town to get food so he never had to stop. And all five of them became completely enlightened, became arhats as a result of that. But the one other teaching that we have from that first session is the teaching of not-self. It's called the uh, uh, the anatta. Uh, anatta means not-self. And this is the sutra on the uh, truth of, or on not-self. This is just, it had to come after this first teaching because it is the explanation for the ignorance that is at the root of craving. If there is a self, then there is an other than self, right? There's a self and then there's the rest of the universe, right? And so now there is a dynamic between the self and everything else. And is this not the, the way we experience the world? There's me in here, and then there's a world of things out there. And my happiness or unhappiness, suffering, is dependent upon my interaction with out there. And so what do I experience when I have something pleasant happens? I have desire. I want, I want more of the pleasantness. I say, oh, that is the thing or the person or whatever that caused me the pleasantness. And so I desire that. I have craving for that. And I set to work to try to attain that. And if something causes me pain, if I, well, actually, let me put this properly, I experience pain, then I look and say, that's the thing that caused me pain. I want to destroy that thing. I want to be removed from the presence of that thing. I want, I, I want it no longer to, to be there. So it is this belief that I am a self that is separate from the rest of the universe that actually demands craving. It demands desire and aversion. And so that's the ignorance that lies at the root of craving. And that must be overcome in order to achieve the state of complete freedom from craving. And so we've gone a little bit over time here already. <laughs> so do you have any, does anyone have any questions? Anything they'd like to raise as a result of this? I would encourage you to familiarize yourself very much with the teaching of the Four Noble Truths. The Eightfold Path, which is the fourth truth, is... It's basically the, the method of how you become enlightened and every statement and every word in that uh, is, when decompacted is, is all kinds of information and doctrine. But the same is of these other things. Now, um, when in that first teaching the Buddha taught the truth of dukkha, remember he finished up by saying that it is these five aggregates, it is the clinging to these five aggregates. In short, it is the clinging to these five aggregates that is suffering. He was giving the whole answer right there, except he couldn't really tell it. Because in the next sutra, in the sutra on not-self, he then teaches what the five aggregates are. And basically, the five aggregates are meant to completely define and include 
everything that there is about your existence as an individual. So the first thing you have to do is to satisfy yourself. And as a matter of fact, there is nothing about you, all of your experience, your entire life, that is not adequately described within these five aggregates. And that's something that we could spend, some, that we will spend some time talking about in detail. Look at those aggregates so you understand them completely. And that's the first stage in this process of insight, is you have to discover, you have to satisfy yourself that, indeed, they are all inclusive. There's nothing left out. Nothing has been omitted. And the next stage is you say, okay, if I have a self, it must be either some part of this five aggregates or the five aggregates in their totality. The next stage is to satisfy you yourself that... uh, there is that, that the self that we wish to uh, cling to and that we base all of this craving on, that there's no basis for it in there. That it's only a fiction of the mind. So. Anyway, we will, we will proceed with... Uh, these teachings, when I come back, I'm going to be gone to Canada for the next two weeks, and then I'll be back, and uh, we'll be doing these Thursday evening talks every second Thursday until uh, end of August, and first week in September, I'm leading a retreat in California, so I'll be gone for two weeks then, and then when I come back, it'll be every Thursday from then on until something else comes up. Anyway, um, the uh, every Sunday we do meditation and teaching in Kochi Stronghold, and uh, that will go on over the summer, except for the two weeks every Sunday, except for the two weeks that I'm gone to Canada and the two weeks that I'm doing the retreat at the end of the summer, unless something comes up, of course, and. Uh, as most of you have already been out there and know where it is, but those of you who don't, who are interested, we used to do this on Monday rather than Sunday. So it's a website that's called mondaymeditation.com. No <laughs> www, just mondaymeditation.com. And it has directions to get there and the schedule of activities and also an update if uh, we're doing anything different. We're not going to be there any particular, excuse me, any particular Sunday. <coughs> find that out at that website. So, anyway, thank you for coming and staying this evening. I hope I hope you enjoyed this. I hope that getting into the sutras and looking at the basic foundation teachings is interesting to you, helpful to you. I know you're, you're, you're bound to wonder that the there's a lot of trouble to go to to find out that I don't even exist. <laughs> but there is, much, fortunately, much more to that, and so to it than that. So stick with me. Let's let's see if we can get there. Thank you.